You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. From Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, beginning in verse 18, here's what God would say to us this morning through the Apostle Paul. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Uh, Would you... Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have this morning to be together, to hear from your word, to hear from you. Lord, I ask that your spirit would be released powerfully to hover in our midst and to speak to us and come and do a work of salvation and transformation at the same time. Lord, Lord, you can come and do uh, more than we can uh, either imagine or ask for and so god we just ask for that and trust that you can do it and then some but i recognize even now that uh, that i uh, as i as i stand in this pulpit to preach recognize that i am i am weak and unable to explain your word uh, in, in a way that is um, good and wholesome and so god i ask for your help uh, ask for your help to communicate in a way that would be helpful to your sheep and would be honoring and glorifying to you Trust you to do this work in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 You may be seated. So here we are. It's the Christmas season, right? 2020. Wild, wacky year. Thank God it's almost over. Who knows what 2021 is going to look like. We can at least look back on 2020 with some 2020 vision. (laughs) I got a couple laughs out of that. That's good. (laughs) All right. All right. Um... You know, the Christmas season, though, it's a season that is uh, typically full of joy and excitement, right? You know, from an early age for us, each of us has been trained, so to speak, to look forward every year to Christmas with all of its cultural trappings. You got family get-togethers, you got big extravagant meals. Thank you, Jesus. You can tell I like those from my shape. I'm in shape, round. (laughs) Big extravagant meals. Uh, you know, you got the excitement of gift giving and the excitement of gift receiving. Uh, you got holiday movies on the Hallmark Channel, which I'll confess haven't watched many of yet this year, so I probably need to go home and catch up. And our gospel community is not me tonight, so I think that's probably what I'm going to do. You can probably see my wife is excited about that because she loves those. I love them because she loves them. Hallmark movie channels, though, or movies. Um, you got the beauty of Christmas lights. Anybody here like to drive around and look at Christmas lights in neighborhoods? Late night was glistening off the snow and so on and so forth. I love that. You got Christmas concerts. You got Christmas parades. You got company Christmas parties. Um, everything revolves around Christmas right now. This time of year really uh, is just one great big gigantic festival, right? And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with the festivist time we're living in that comes around every year, nothing wrong with enjoying all of those things that I just listed, it can be very easy to forget 
even for Christians who celebrate the birth of Christ during this season, it can be very easy to forget two things. It can be easy to forget what it must have actually been like when Jesus was born. It can be very easy to also forget what the actual purpose of Jesus' birth is. When you think about um, the, you think about the time and the culture that Jesus was born into. Jesus was born into a very terrifying season in Israel's history. Israel was living under uh, foreign occupation. They had been invaded, so to speak. They were living under that foreign Roman occupation. Uh, they also were living in a season where there was a very vicious, child-murdering king who was ruling over the Jews. That vicious king was murdering all babies under the age of two, slaughtering them in an attempt to take out Jesus. This is what Jesus was born into. You think about Israel's uh, spiritual leaders during the time that Jesus was born. Israel's spiritual leaders were absolutely divided, and a majority of them were absolutely corrupt. Um, if you happen to get my notes emailed to you throughout the week, I would encourage you just to check out the scriptural references for everything I just said. I, I, there's not enough time in the world to take you through all of it, but if you go and you look through it, it really paints a picture much differently than what we experience every year on Christmas. Jesus wasn't necessarily born into a festivous time. That's my point. Now think, too, about the reason that Jesus was born. The reason that Jesus was born can easily be, be misunderstood, uh, even by well-meaning Christians, who, and I, I want to say this gently, but well-meaning Christians who are oftentimes uh, maybe more influenced by our American culture than they are by the biblical record. There's something really important about the biblical record without our American glasses on our face um, that is redemptive. Important for us to think about. Even the disciples, when you think about the disciples, if you go back to the biblical record, the disciples had a hard time getting it right when it came to the purpose of Jesus' birth, okay? Even the disciples struggled with this. Man, they thought that Jesus was going to overthrow their oppressors. The disciples couldn't believe that Jesus was going to die. They kind of got it wrong. And here's the thing. When Jesus failed to meet their expectations, what were their expectations? Their expectations is that Jesus would be a triumphant king. And when Jesus failed to meet those expectations, when he died on the cross, instead of waging war against their physical enemies, what happened? What happened? His disciples abandoned him and left him to die alone, right? And listen, it wasn't just that his friends were gone. On that cross, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a sense of being completely alone. That God the Father even turned his eyes away from his one and only Son. Now we can make lots of arguments, truthfully, about the eternal triune nature of Father, Son, and Spirit. That there was actually no true separation. But Jesus in his humanity in that moment felt the most alone feeling that anybody who has ever existed will ever feel. 
It's easy. It's easy to miss these things in, in our American context, right? It's good for us to be reminded of this. Easy to miss the fact that when Jesus was born, he was born to die on a cross to do what? On a cross to do what? To crush the power of Satan's sin and death. So, so when we celebrate Christmas, what are we actually celebrating? It's a good question to write down and think about. It's not just like, um, it's not just a, uh, like an intellectual question to answer either. Okay, I, I want that question to be more personal. Like when I celebrate the Christmas season, what am I actually celebrating? And when I ask that question, I want to ask uh, secondary questions like, okay, to answer that question, I need to get after what is it that causes my heart to leap in joy? What is it that causes my heart to bow down in um, um, maybe more like a depression or, or, or despair, Right. When you ask those two alternating or, or opposing questions, it kind of gets after, well, what is it that I'm actually celebrating in this season then? What is it that I have hope in? What am I hoping for? You know, I'm looking forward to um, uh, my daughter, Harley, our daughter, not just my daughter, um, our meaning Christy and I's daughter, um, and, and our son-in-law, Jordan, um, and, our, and our little grandbaby, Ezra. Uh, they're going to be home on Christmas Eve, and I can't freaking wait. You know, I can't. And we haven't seen him since he was born, and I uh, can't wait to see him. And that's not wrong. The question I'm asking about Christmas is, what is it about the Christmas season that brings that up in you? Am I equally, at least, as excited about celebrating the birth of Jesus? Sadly, I must admit to you that, no, not all the time. That's why these are good questions. It's good to be reminded that, this was how Jesus came, and this is what he came for, so that I might be rejuvenated and renewed, right? So, what are we really celebrating for Christmas? I want to I I attempt to give you some things that might spark a gospel-centered celebration inside of you. When you look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, what do you see? You see the Apostle Paul celebrating something. He's, he's celebrating the fact that Jesus came to this earth to do what? To reign supreme. He's celebrating the fact that Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme. But he didn't come to reign supreme in a way that some people thought he would reign supreme. We've kind of covered that, right? What Colossians chapter 1 verses 18 through 19 teaches us is that Jesus actually came to this earth to reign supreme over the church. Okay? He came supreme to reign, came to reign supreme over the church. How is he enabled to do that? He's able to do that because he is the head of the body, number one. He's the firstborn from the dead, number two, and he's the fullness of God, number three. Those are the three pieces we're going to take a look at. Let's look at the first one together. First, Jesus came to reign supreme as the head of the body. If somebody say the body. See, that's just a communication trick so I can take a drink of my coffee. <laughs> Jesus came to reign supreme as the head of the body. You see this in verse 18, right? When the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, what's he saying? What's the statement he's making? The statement that he's making is simply that Jesus is the supreme head or the supreme leader, okay? At the end of the day, like, I'm not the supreme leader, I'm not the supreme head. 
None of our elders are. Nobody in this room is. Jesus is the supreme head and supreme leader of the church family. Oftentimes we as humans get this wrong, don't we? And not just in the church. We get this wrong in our families. We get this wrong in our jobs. We get this wrong in all sorts of places. We get this wrong especially when we're sitting at restaurants and we're being served by waiters who can't keep up with the, with the flow of things, right? Those are ways that it looks wrong in our lives, the ways that sin has infected us to make us think in our pride that we are actually the head. The most important would be a good way to say it, right? Jesus is the supreme head or leader of the church family. This is why Jesus told his disciples that he was going to build his church on the rock. What was the rock he was going to build it on? He was going to build his church on the rock of his own crucifixion and resurrection. And on the back end of that, he says, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. See, there is no earthly force that is going to stand against the force of a church where Jesus is the supreme commander in chief. I don't care what kind of earthly force it is. No church, no church who has Christ as its supreme commander in chief will fall against any earthly force. So here's the reality. The reality according to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 as well is that the body of Christ is one, right? It's one. There's one universal church and there's local expressions of that universal church. Denominational lines go away in eternity. I should probably say that again. Denominational lines go away in eternity. All the petty little arguments about finer points of doctrine go away in eternity. Because the body of Christ is one. And the body of Christ has many members, right? All of us are members of that body. And all the members of that body, though they are many, they are actually one body, right? Just as it is in Jesus Christ. Just as it is in the physical body. Think about your own body. If your body was not united together today with many different members, like everybody just take your arms real quick and just flap them around. No, I'm not trying to dance, okay? I mean, if those arms were not attached to your body, it would be a devastating thing, agree? Yeah. Right? If your legs are just like running around, around the room all by themselves, pretty weird. <coughs> if, uh, you know, if you use your finger to pick your nose and it picks your ear, anyways... I mean, just weird things happen when the members of the body start doing weird things that they weren't intended to do, right? Um, you know, for all those of us that are getting older in life, we know what this is like when parts of your body start doing things you really wish they wouldn't do, right? Just, it could, it's embarrassing, right? It can be destructive. I mean, there's just, I, I can just go on and on about this, Right? We, though many, we are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. And th what this underscores, this truth, that the church is the body of Christ, and here's the thing, think about this, the body goes where the head goes, right? And, and if not, like if your body goes somewhere where your head doesn't go and your head's like going that way, again, we got problems, right? The body goes where the head goes because the head controls the body. When you think about all of God's blessings in Christ Jesus... All of those blessings affect the members of the body just like an arm or a leg or a finger or a toe get affected by the health of your physical head. Okay? You think about the church, and, and just get this image of the church. Uh, please don't hear what I'm saying wrong. <coughs> the head of our body, Jesus, he never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forever, right? 
the, the problem exists with us. That's where the problem exists. Um, when, when, we, when we get a bad picture of Jesus and, and who he is as our head, that's when the body starts having problems. So you might think of it this way. Like, you think of a church. I mean, think of the head, okay? Take a minute. Just think of the image of the head. What do you have on your head? Somebody tell me. What do you got on your head? Huh? It was like all of you talked at once. Y'all are awesome. Yeah, you got hair. You got eyes. You got a nose. You got a mouth. You got ears. What's inside of your head? Hot air. No. A brain. Yes. For some of us, hot air. Yeah, right. I get it. So let's just think about this for a minute. Just, let's just use a couple of those as imagery to think through this. Jesus reigns supreme as the head of the body, right? Uh, if you think about a church with a head wound, a church that has a head wound, what, what would that look like? That would look like a heretical false doctrine, right? Thinking in false ways about Jesus. If that's the truth about a church, then that's going to hurt the body, right? So what do we need to do? We need to continue to root out heresy, root out false teaching, chop it down at the root, get rid of it, right? And that, that's not just the job of the pastor and the preacher and the elders. That's the job of everybody in the body to keep an eye on that. That doesn't mean we start arguing over secondary stuff like speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues or pre-tribulation rapture or no rapture. I mean, I, you can all have some opinions on the secondary issues, and it's lots of fun to debate, and we should. Heresy, though, would be basically anything that goes against some of the original creeds. You think of the Apostles' Creed? If you don't believe that, we probably need to talk, right? So we need to continuously root out heresy or false teaching. Uh, so that's just uh, thinking, thinking about a church with a head wound in terms of thinking. Now think about a church uh, with uh, bad eyesight. Can you imagine that? I mean, we've probably all known somebody who has bad eyesight. You're looking at one right now. That's why I'm wearing glasses, okay? Um, you got church with bad eyesight. What do they have? They have a false picture of Jesus, a false image. Not just false thinking, but now we're looking at a false picture of Jesus, right? It's the American blue-eyed, long blonde hair, soft and gentle, would never say anything hurtful or harmful to anybody because he's so kind and nice and gentle, right? He's not the warring king who comes back at the end on a horse, clothes drenched in blood, tattoo on his leg. I mentioned this last week. I mentioned it again. Sword coming out the mouth, lightning bolts coming out of his eyes. I mean, that's a superhero if you ask me, right? So it can be a false picture of Jesus if you have bad eyesight. That hinders the body. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do if that's the case? Actually, what do we need to do is just preemptive. Just to preempt that from the get-go, what should you be doing? I think you and I should be asking the Holy Spirit for spiritual illumination. Spirit, when I open up this Bible, please light this sucker up so that I can see Jesus in all of his glory. Right? Not, oh, what does the Bible say to me today? No, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Right? Now, I mock, right, a minute ago, I mock myself. And you if you do it, too. Just so you know. That's all just so you know, I'm not just mocking you like I don't get that right. I open the Bible each morning in my own selfish state of mind, going, Jesus, please speak to me. Um, and really, I need to be asking, Jesus, please speak about you. Spirit, please illuminate this word that I might have fresh eyes to see Jesus and all of his power and his supreme glory. Okay? Let's think about this one other way. We've thought about it in terms of a head wound. we thought about it in terms of bad eyesight. I want you to think about this in terms of bad hearing. Anybody here have bad hearing? Somebody say, what? what? Thank you. That was good. Think about a church of bad hearing. What does it look like if you have bad hearing? 
It looks like a bunch of people who are attracted to false pop culture teachings, right? Kind of like popcorn, but not really. It's kind of in the same category, but not, you know, it's similar. It's kind of, you know, it's like, it's like the same between like, you know, grape snow cones and cherry snow cones. It's kind of the same. Both favorites. <laughs> Thank you. No, we're not going to talk about cupcakes. Let's go back to talking about. <laughs> I love cupcakes, though. Let's talk about hearing. Right, let's talk about ears that are attracted to uh, false teaching, ears that are attracted to pop cultural teaching. Right now, in this year, we have all sorts of conspiracy theories. Anybody here like, to, like conspiracy theories? You, you, thank you. It's okay. I do, too, it, to an extent, okay? To an extent because it makes me think a little bit differently. Um, I do reject a lot of um, conspiracy theories. That's just me. You might not. We're in the same camp. We're still believers. It's all right, right? Um, we need to be careful with these kinds of things. Conspiracy theories, one, yes. Pop cultural teaching, two. Um, a lot of the pop psychology of this world has made it into theology, and at times can be good, but you've got to pick out what's biblical and what's not, right? Um, sometimes some of that stuff can just be good in terms of, you know, I kind of got a little bit of a warning about what could be coming down the pike, but I really don't know because I'm not God, right? I need to approach these kinds of things that way. Um, but if I have bad hearing, if my hearing is only tuned to those kinds of things, think about tuning your ears like tuning an instrument, my ears are only tuned to those kinds of things. Pretty soon I stop hearing the literal words of Scripture. And I start interpreting those words of Scripture in, in a way that really God never intended us to interpret them. Okay? So, um, so, so, so if our ears get out of whack, it can really limit us as part of the body. So what you need to do, you need to listen to the pure words of the Father. Listen to the pure words of the Father. Ask the Spirit. Give me the pure words of the Father. Strip all of this other stuff away. Okay, because here's the reality. Between social media, websites, radio, TV, we're getting bombarded with stuff, aren't we? Right? Just, I mean, you can cut out social media, which I know a lot of us do, and I do some from that time, time to time, too. You can fast from that, but guess what? You're still going to turn your radio on. Or you're still going to go to the gas station. You know what I mean? I mean, so, so we're getting bombarded with stuff from all over the place that isn't necessarily biblical or godly. So keep an eye on that, right? Here's the point. At the end of the day, in this first point, that what the mind thinks, what the eyes see, what the ears hear, they all affect the health of the head. And our, 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 our vision and our hearing and our thinking about the head, who is Christ, right? And then, and then as that gets affected, <coughs> that affects the health and the growth and the ability of the body of Christ. And my part of that as just one member. The reality is this. Jesus came to this earth to do what? To reign supreme as the head of the body. He is the head. Reign supreme as the head of the body, the church. And here's the question. Three questions. I've asked a lot of them, but here's three that I thought of. Do we think about the biblical Christ? Or has he been replaced with a cultural Christ? All right? Do we seek a more biblical vision of Christ? Or are we uninterested? Uh, do we listen to the pure words of Christ, or do we ignore those words, right? Here's the thing. Anything short of thinking or seeing or hearing, let me say this one more time. Anything short of thinking, seeing, or hearing from the real Jesus, what happens in that is we wind up making a false Jesus our supreme head. This is why we've got to remember that Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme 
as the head of the body, the church. Can somebody say amen? amen? I'm out of coffee, so I can't take a drink. Number two, look at this. Jesus came to reign supreme as the firstborn from the dead. Somebody say firstborn. firstborn. Very good. Jesus came to reign supreme as the firstborn from the dead. So when the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians in verse 18 that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, what's he saying? He's simply stating that Jesus came to reign supreme as the firstborn from among the dead. You might be like, I see that. That's pretty easy. It's in the text. What's the big deal, right? Or you might be asking, why is he using this word firstborn? We kind of dealt with that a little bit last week. Here's the thing. Short and sweet, Jesus is the firstborn in resurrection unto glorification. Meaning that Jesus is the firstborn <coughs> in a kind of resurrection that, uh, that, that led to complete restoration. There's been people who have been brought back from the dead. Jesus even brought people back from the dead. But none of those people that Jesus brought back from the dead were brought back to a complete restoration at that point. They were brought back to just live another life on this earth until they died again. And then would be resurrected again, right? That was just to show his power. It was like a, a precursor to the fact that Jesus was going to leave that grave empty. So Jesus is the firstborn, the very first person to ever be resurrected unto glorification. Therefore, he is supreme, right? What is that word when you look at the word preeminent? Um, what does it say? It, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So write that word down, preeminent. Or, you know, circle it, start it in your Bible, highlight it, whatever you want to do. What's he saying when he uses that word preeminent? Preeminent literally means that he has first place in everything. First place. So when you go and you take your cows or your donkeys or your chickens or your rabbits or your squirrels or, I don't know, your lizards... <laughs> Um, I had salamanders when I was a kid, and I took them to the fair, and I showed them. That's my point, when you take animals to the fair and show them. And if you don't like animals, and there's something wrong with you, but anyways, if you don't like animals, <laughs> and maybe you maybe you're like got artwork, you're taking that to the fair, right? Point is, you're trying to get the first place ribbon. Typically, I think it's the blue ribbon, right? Or the purple ribbon, one of the two. It's been a long time since I've been there. Anyways, there's a first place, and a second place, and a third place. Jesus is first place, always. He's never been second place, never been third place. Problem is that we like to put him in second place and put him in third place. How do we do that? We do that by placing ourselves in first place first. We are preeminent, not him. And the point here is that Jesus is preeminent. He is in first place. It's about you and I accepting the fact that he is in first place and then living that out, right? That's what preeminent means. Jesus is the first to experience the restoration of resurrection. Therefore, a true Eternal restoration, when you think about what you look forward to, <coughs> where does it begin at? It has to begin and end both in and with and through and for Jesus because he's first, he's preeminent. Oftentimes we think about the future in terms of escapism theology. I'm going to get out of this thing. Oh, I, I said this last week too, but that's not actually the picture of Scripture. Actually, the picture of Scripture is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, slash glorification. It's about that all things will become new. New heavens, new earth. It's restoration. There's also annihilation in there. That's kind of the one that I like when Jesus comes back on his horse with his clothes drenched in blood. But we won't talk about that today. 
too much. Because of this truth, when you think about how everything begins and ends in Christ, what, what, what could that do for us practically? Helps us to live our lives with no fear. No fear of Satan, sin, or death, right? See, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead three days after dying on a cross, what that does is it reminds us that Jesus is the supreme commander. He is the first without equal. He's the incomparable, victorious, king of kings and lord of what? Yeah. <clears throat> incomparable. Nobody compares to him. The resurrection itself really is the central truth of Christianity. Why? Because without the empty tomb, our hope is absolutely what? Hopeless. Without the resurrection, our hope is hopeless. It's useless. Why? Because if there's no resurrection, then our Savior's dead. Why would you worship a dead Savior? We worship a Savior who was crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected, and ascended and is now returning. That's hope. I don't have hope in a dead Savior. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And apart from the message of Christ, crucified, risen, returning in glory, to restore all things to their rightful order, we have no hope. Don't get your mind twisted up with all sorts of weird, uh, legalistic, pragmatic, go do five things to make yourself holy and a better Christian type of teaching. Listen to teaching that is centered on the gospel of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. That will set you free. Okay? There's no hope outside the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. See, here's the thing. I want to press this a little bit further. If Jesus just merely faked his death, which some people think, turn on the History Channel or National Geographic right around Christmas and right around Easter every year, and you're going to hear all sorts of these weird conspiracies that drive me batty. If Jesus just merely faked his death, or if Jesus just had a twin brother, that's one that they talk about, right? That's a funny one. He had a twin brother stepped in at the last moment, or maybe here's another one, and this is actually specifically what the Colossian church is dealing with, that when Jesus rose from the grave, he didn't actually raise, rise in bodily form. He, he was just like this weird spiritual ghost, right? Which if you read the biblical account, you immediately find out that can't be true. The dude ate fish. Ghosts don't eat fish. I don't think. I mean, ghosts don't walk up to you and go, hey, you want to fill the holes in my hands see what I did for you, Thomas? Right? That's kind of what was happening in the Colossian church was dealing with that kind of heresy. Good to root that out. But if those are the things that we believe in, if we believe in a Jesus like that, then we are above all people the most to be pitied, right? The most to be pitied. And at the end of the day, all of our... Christmas celebrations might as well be nothing more than a cultural festival, which here's the thing. Sadly, sadly, there's an awful lot of quote-unquote Christian homes in our, you know, our Christian nation that really look more cultural than biblical when it comes to celebrating Jesus in this time. This is why the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the beginning, the first one from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent, first place, commander-in-chief, top of the line. Nobody's better than him, ever, in all of eternity. Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme as the firstborn from the dead, so that we might live in 
freedom from the power of Satan, sin, and death as we look forward to perfect restoration in eternity. Let's not forget that. Again, prayer is that as you think about these things, that what the Holy Spirit does in us this morning is rejuvenates or reawakens a right celebration of Jesus in this Christmas season. Third piece, I want you to look at with me, verse 19. Jesus came to reign supreme as the fullness of God. Right? Jesus came to reign supreme as the fullness of God. Somebody say fullness. fullness. You guys are awesome. Somebody say cupcakes. <laughs> Thank you. Fullness. Like full, fluffy cupcakes. Now, I don't even know how that worked. Anyways, <laughs> when the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We think about this statement. Here's how we read this oftentimes. All the fullness of God was pleased to live in Jesus, right? And yeah, that's true. That's the way the word is used. Then you get this picture of like a mere human who just has God living inside of him. And that's not really the outcome and the meaning of this passage. So if that's not really it, what are we supposed to get from this? And what does it actually mean? What, 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 what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Okay, not, not just God, um, like, filling um, this fleshly Jesus like water fills a glass, although there's truth to that answer, too, that the Spirit filled him. Um, it's bigger than that. That's what I'm saying. It's much broader than that. Uh, that's why so many theologians will say this section of text, text is, is some of the highest Christological text you can read. It's so heady because it's, it's massive, okay? So, so when you think about this, what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh, okay? Here's what he's not. Jesus is not just some strange manifestation of God. Jesus is not just some weird imitation of God, like imitation powdered milk, okay? Um, Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the authentic God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel. God with us, God in the flesh. He became a real flesh and blood human being so that every other human that has been created by the word who is Christ could actually come near to God and become God's child by grace, through faith in Christ, according to scripture, the glory of God the Father. Tattooed on my arm, just so you know, I said this earlier to my kids. I just worked through this tattoo. These are the solas of the Reformation. People joke because they're like, well, there's five of them. Yeah, sola. It's one big statement. One solo statement. But it's by grace, through faith in Christ, according to the scriptures, to the glory of the Father. Maybe it's four. One, two, three, four, five. I see five. I missed one. It's by grace. Through faith, I'm going to read it off my arm, in Christ, according to Scripture, the glory of God, sola, alone. Okay? That's what we celebrate in this Christmas season. Don't you love it when you see me biff it? <laughs> Here's the truth. <laughs> the truth is this. <laughs> the truth is that the fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ. Okay? You can look at Colossians 2.9. That would also substantiate it further. Because what that passage teaches us, the same as what we're learning here, it teaches us that we need to look no further. Listen, 
You need to look no further than Jesus to see God in all of his fullness. Okay? Um, um, it, would, it would be of absolutely no benefit to you or I to say that we know God without knowing Jesus. Okay? Um, you need to look no further than Jesus. When Jesus said to his disciples and those who were listening, he said, hey, if you want to know God, you want to come to the Father, nobody comes to the Father except by me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's the point of that passage. No benefit to you and I to say you know God if you don't know Jesus. That's why I love to ask people, then tell me what Jesus has been saying to you lately. And then what I want to do is I want to test what they say Jesus has been saying to them by the words that Jesus actually said. You know what I mean? Okay, there's no connection there. Um, that we need to have a talk. Is Jesus really talking to you? Do you really know? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you spending time with him? Uh, this is why Jesus told Philip before the crucifixion that to see Christ is to see God. And then like I referenced earlier, this is why he told Thomas after the resurrection that it's actually a blessing to believe in God without seeing him, even as Thomas looked at and actually felt Jesus, God, in the flesh. What does this remind us? You take all this high, heady stuff, what does it actually remind us of? Here's an illustration or a picture for you that might stick. What it reminds us is that just like the sun, you think of the, the actual literal sun, and you see the light from it, you and I both do, right? Um, we know that there's rays coming off of that sun. Those rays are not just an emanation from the sun. They are actually part of the sun. They are the sun. It's the sun's rays. Those are a direct extension of the sun itself. In the same way, Jesus is a direct extension of God himself in the flesh. Not just an emanation not just a representation, not just an imitation, God in the flesh, that's Jesus. And that's who we celebrate in this time. When you think about all the craziness in this world, right? You begin to wonder sometimes, I don't know about you, but I do, like, is God, God, are you, are you paying attention to what's going on with your kids? Are, are you paying attention to what's going on in this creation right now? Because this is freaking whack, Right? <laughs> <coughs> when that happens, like you and I have to stop and we have to remember that, that everything we experience in this broken world right now, every ugly thing that shocks us, everything that causes us grief, everything that we see in this world that is some kind of horrible atrocity that we see going on, everything is meant to point us back to the Jesus who reigns supreme as the fullness of God. He came and walked in our sin-soaked world in the flesh so that we could see by him, in him, through him, and for him the power of his majesty. Right? And he left the grave empty. That's the hope that we have. This world is not all there is. Our kingdom is not of this world. We're just aliens wandering, not wandering around, but walking around. The world's not our home. The new heavens and the new earth, that's what we look forward to. God in the flesh, he took on flesh in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He walked among us. He experienced the horror of the cross, right? He knows your grief. He knows your pain. He knows your fear. He knows all of your frustration and your anger. He knows everything that courses through you, including every hair on your head in the days of your life. He knows it all. God really does stand outside of our linear timeline. Sees everything like that. 
a, a moment is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a moment, right? If, if for God. When we think about the fact that he knows all of those things, we're reminded that God became a human in the person of Christ. And he did that so that you and I could be reconciled, which we're going to talk about more next week. Did that so that you and I could be reconciled to God through Christ's work at the cross and the empty tomb. This is why God's word teaches us that Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme as the fullness of God. So, I'm going to wrap things up, right? There's good things that we learn from this text. Big, high theology that we learn. What we've learned is that Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme over the church, right? How does he do that? By being the head of the body, by being firstborn from the dead, by being the fullness of God in the flesh. That's how he does that. And while you uh, and I, while we experience the Christmas season that we're walking through here in 2020 after an insane year, not knowing what 2021 is going to bring. Um, but as we walk through this Christmas season, man, it may be full of joy, right, right now. It may be full of beauty. It may be full of celebration. Here's what I know about us as humans, right? Unless you have a really high gift of escaping from reality, even if you do have that gift, you're still going to come back to reality at some point and recognize this when you and i lay our heads down on our pillows at night when the celebration is over when the family members have left right uh, maybe when the uh, all-out family war sinks in right because that happens in this season too when the consumerism of this national holiday passes you and i still have to face some ugly truths don't we We've got to face an ugly truth that this world is not all it's cracked up to be. It's just not. It's not right. There's, there's a lot not right in the world we live in. And we will, we will remember that. This world is still broken. Why? Because each of us are still broken. And we're broken um, because each of us is infected with sin. It's not just in a brokenness. It's not just that we're broken. It's that we're infected with something that's destructive. Here's the thing, and you guys all know this, right? Your family's going to let you down, right? The person across the table from you is going to let you down. The guy on the stage here, going to let you down. Church family in this room, going to let you down. And, and just a little secret in case you didn't know, you're going to let other people down too. Because we're sinful. Um, you think about death. Death. Death's coming for every one of us some point. <coughs> a year like this year, we've experienced an awful lot of that in, in, in a different way, I think. But it's still turning down the tracks for, for each of us. It's appointed for every man, one time, typically, sometimes two times, if you're really bad. Meaning, like, yeah. Some of us might die twice. Death's coming. Even though we uh, sometimes wish, I don't know about you guys, sometimes wish that you had the power of God. Anybody ever get there? Like, God, why are you letting this happen? You know, if I was in your seat, I would do it differently. I don't know that we all are arrogant and prideful enough to just literally say that in our minds because there is a little bit of a fear of God. Like, hey, you might zap me with lightning if I say that thing. The great thing is God has pretty big shoulders, I think. Um, as a good father, I think he kind of just chuckles maybe. 
you know, sometimes when we say that, like, <laughs> you little kid. Um, I know that my heart gets there, like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I think I would have done it a lot differently. The reality is we, we're not God, right? And the world is still on a collision course towards destruction. You think about those things, that, that reality sinks in. It doesn't just stay away just because of the celebration of this season, right? But here's the thing, if you're paying attention to this sermon, if you're paying attention to this text, if you're paying attention to what I think the Holy Spirit wants to say to us, there's still hope, right? There's true hope. See, if you're seeing what I'm seeing in the text, then there's beauty in the ash heap, isn't there? If you're hearing what I would say is like the music in the text, and there's more than enough reasons to dance, more than enough reasons to celebrate the coming of Christ to this earth in the form of a baby in a manger during foreign occupation amidst the mass murder of babies under the age of two. Like that would not be a season that I'd want to celebrate and I want to grieve, want to get angry, want to pull out my guns and go AWOL on people, right? Especially a king like that who would do that. Yeah. Think about, again, the context that Jesus came into. Most of the religious and political institutions were divided. They were at war with one another. Does that sound familiar? Religious and political institutions being divided and corrupt? Yeah. Hey, come on. Like, that's, that's what we're living in, right? Yeah. And even in that, there's hope, there's beauty, there's music to celebrate, to dance to. Why? Because Jesus came to this earth to reign supreme over the church as the head of the body, the firstborn from among the dead as the fullness of God in the flesh. See, when you look up from the foot of a bloody cross, because that's where we ought to spend our time, when you look up from that place and you look through the doorway of a tomb and you see that it's actually empty because Jesus isn't dead anymore, and, and in the midst of that, you turn your eyes up to heaven. And you remember there's a promise of complete, eternal restoration. Then what happens is you find the only one who reigns supreme as the commander-in-chief who gave his life to save who? Not you and I because we were so beautiful and so great. He gave his life to save us in our whoring around. He gave his life to save us, his enemies. That's what he did. And then he left the grave empty, signifying his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And his promise to us is to restore everything when he returns as the reigning King of Kings and the Lord of what? Lords. Jesus is first place. I pray that the Spirit puts him in that place in your heart as we celebrate in our time of closing. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would fill our hearts with celebration now as we sing and as we close in prayer. God, we love you so much. Thank you for coming to reign supreme through the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. Pray, God, that you'd help us to celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.